of you know what a three-legged race is? Anybody know what a three-legged race is? How many of you have ever participated in a three-legged race? Can I get a volunteer? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No volunteers. We're not doing it. Now, uh, think about a three-legged race. That's, in fact, if you don't, if you're here like, what is a three-legged race? It's where you take two people. Usually, you're pretty young. I don't see a lot of old people doing the three-legged race. Put two people together. You tie their leg together, and then they're in a race with other people with the same Restriction, and they start running. And what usually happens? Well, usually it's pretty hilarious, right, when you get people strapped together. And why is it so challenging to, to run a three-legged race? Well, it's challenging because oftentimes we're paired with somebody that's a much different size. Maybe they're taller, we're shorter. Maybe they're faster, we're slower. They have a longer gait, we have a smaller gait. It's just all of these things come into play as I said a moment ago, usually resulting in something quite funny uh, for those watching. For those doing it, maybe not so much. Now, the three-legged race is, of sorts, a modern-day yoke. And we're going to be talking a lot today about a yoke. And I'll give a little more explanation in just a moment. And while there's no place in the Bible, at least that I've been able to find, where it mentions a three-legged race, the word yoke is in there 68 times. And we're going to be looking at one of those passages this morning where the word yoke is. Is found. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as we read that text in just a moment, for those of you that have been part of this series over the last few weeks, you might have the question, huh, it doesn't seem to quite fit what's been, what Paul's been teaching on. And so anytime we approach a text, context is always important, right? We want to know why God, through the inspired authors, has put this passage here, and, and what does it mean for us today? And so it doesn't really seem like it fits. So I, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a heads up as we read, because if you have been here over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the ministry of reconciliation. Back in chapter five, Paul introduced the ministry of reconciliation, talking about the, the need for him, himself to be reconciled with the, 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 the Christians there in Corinth. But last week, as we looked at that, we learned that the ministry of reconciliation is our ministry of reconciliation. Chad Moore, who was preaching that sermon, did an excellent job in, in challenging us to live missionally, that there needs to be this urgency that while we now have been reconciled, for those in Christ have been reconciled with God, we now are called to be the salt and the light, the, to share the gospel good news with the world that they might too experience that same peace, that same reconciliation that we have. And that's our ministry of reconciliation. And see, Paul's concern was that there in Corinth, those Christians perhaps were still involved in some things or still had some relationships that would hinder that ministry of reconciliation in their lives. And that's why he says in the very first few words of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So let's read the entire passage now and, and, and get the feel for what Paul is saying, understanding that I think he's preparing them or help, his desire is to help them have that ministry of reconciliation. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In verse one of chapter seven, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, the very first part of verse 14, in fact, let's, the Roman numeral one, the prohibition. And that is the first eight words of this verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This, these eight words are perhaps the most familiar eight words in the entire letter that Paul wrote to 2 Corinthians. And when you hear those words, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Marriage. A little more hesitant at this hour. The last two hours, they jumped right in. Yes, that's, that's the verse that we, we, we often use when we're talking about marriage. But was that the context that Paul was dealing with here? No, it wasn't. Does it apply to marriage? Absolutely. In fact, if you're here today and you're not married, you are a believer in Christ and you're not married, I would strongly exhort you to not even consider marrying an unbeliever. I would encourage you not to even consider dating an unbeliever. And as we're going to see, it, it, it includes marriage, but boy, does it go so much further than that. Now, Paul uses this metaphor here when he says unequally yoked, and it's based on Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, which prohibits yoking two animals of different types together. It says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, when you would yoke an animals together, you did it for a purpose. That yoke was that wooden beam that sat on behind the neck of, of two animals and it would join these two animals together. And again, the purpose was to get something done, at least in a, a more efficient way than what one animal could do. So you'd put two animals together. And oftentimes they were yoked together to pull a plow or maybe to pull a cart that's loaded with supplies. And so that was the purpose for this yoke was to get something accomplished. Now, you can imagine what would happen if you put a oxen with a donkey together. They got different purposes. They're different breeds, right? And so they're going to they're, they're gonna have a hard time getting accomplished what you want to get accomplished, whether it's plowing a straight line or, or pulling a cart. They're going to get into an argument, I guarantee. I just know ox and donkey. They're bound to get in some kind of argument. Well, that's, that's, what, that's what Paul is taking the same practical word that God has given in his scriptures back in Deuteronomy and saying, all right, this is what I'm challenging or commanding you do not be unequally yoked. So how were the Corinthian Christians being unequally yoked? And by extension, how can we be unequally yoked as well? Well, I want to start with a little bit of a definition, a working definition that kind of helps me see the, the breadth of this, that it's more than just dealing with marriage. In fact, it's a lot more than that. And so here's, here's, a, here's my working definition. Unequally yoked applies to any environment, any relationship where we let the world influence our thinking and behavior. Any environment, any relationship where we let the world influence how we think and how we behave. You see, if we are being more influenced by the culture than we are by God and his word, 
then we are unequally yoked. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, this comes down to a matter of influence. Are we allowing the world through a relationship, through an environment, to influence us more than we are allowing God and his word to influence us? Now, before we get to the application, I want to just up front first say what Paul is not saying here. First of all, Paul is not saying for you to sever all ties with unbelievers. Unfortunately, there have been people that claim the name of Christ that have said, oh, okay, I'll just avoid all Christians altogether, and I'll make sure my family, that are Christians, avoid all Christians altogether. That's not what Paul's saying at all. In fact, if you, if you read any of Paul's writings, you know that he was very much for us to be involved in the world. In fact, to use Jesus' words in his uh, prayer for his disciples in John 17, we are to live in the world, not what? of the world. I heard, a, I heard a, a, an analogy of this the, a couple of weeks ago. A pastor was preaching, and he used the analogy of a boat. So imagine yourself as a believer, a follower in Christ, as a boat. And a boat functions best in what? Water. So you put the boat in the water, and the boat can do what it's supposed to do. It's in the water. But what happens when water starts coming over the edges and starts filling up the boat? Well, the boat's not as effective anymore, right? In fact, you get too much water, what happens? The boat sinks. Again, a good analogy, and all analogies break down, but a good analogy to say that as believers, we are to live in the world, but not of the world. So if you have too much of the world coming over the edges and filling you up, you're not gonna be effective. Paul's not, not also, also not saying that if you are here today as a believer and you know that you are married to an unbeliever, that you need to start pursuing a divorce. In fact, Paul dealt with that very issue in his first letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter seven. So he's not saying that either. So what is Paul saying in this command? Letter A on your outline. We can be unequally yoked in our relationships. Unequally yoked in our relationships. As we continue we'll, and, and reading in this passage, we're gonna see that Paul's referring to the problem of the Corinthian Christians being yoked together with pagans and their worship. And so Paul is being very explicit here, calling for a separation in the matters of worship. There can be no spiritual common ground when it comes to believers and unbelievers. However, I think the application goes way beyond just spiritual matters, that there is an application here in almost any endeavor where we partner with unbelievers. To use Paul's metaphor, the ox and the donkey yoked together, they cannot plow a straight line. And if they do plow a straight line for a short period of time, it's because the ox is dragging the donkey along. And I have a feeling a lot of times that's the way we as believers are in the world. The world is literally dragging us Along. Who's influencing who in that situation? The world is influencing us. Now, there's another way to look at this because, as we mentioned, Paul is writing this in the context of the ministry of reconciliation, where he has challenged them to have this ministry of reconciliation. And Paul knew that they probably still. In fact, many of them had come out of pagan religions and they probably still were involved to some extent. Maybe they had cleaned out all the idols in their house, but there was that one little idol left over in the corner. Eh, we'll just leave that there for good luck. Or perhaps they still had friends that were involved in the pagan religions. And so eh, we'll just celebrate a pagan feast every once in a while with our friends just to keep the relationship going. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. The, the world is influencing you in these situations, in these moments. 
There must be a separation from those things. And so the question comes down to a matter of influence again. Think about it. Do you have any close relationships now that are hindering your spiritual growth? Any relationship, a close relationship that you have that is, that is not drawing, not encouraging you toward Christ, but rather is encouraging you away from Christ. Do you have any close relationships right now that are hindering your own ministry of reconciliation? They would, they would say, well, you're not any different than, than I am. And I think that was what Paul was concerned about was they were living very much like the rest of the pagans there in Corinth. And how could they have a ministry of reconciliation? I like to have a test for things to kind of help me, okay? Because this is, this is very, okay, well, is this relationship wrong? Is this relationship good? Here's my test, and you can use this how it, however it helps you. But is the relationship I have, is it influencing me away from my faith or toward my faith? Is the relationship I have with this person, is it influencing me more to be more like Christ or is it influencing me away? And what a simple test, right? And as we go through, we're going to see that there really is not even a neutral ground as we talk about this relationship. Letter B, we can be unequally yoked also by our culture. It's not just direct relationships that can influence us away from Christ, where we can be unequally yoked, but also our culture. Now think about the culture in, in, in Corinth in Paul's day. It would have been filled with false religions, all kinds of pagan temples everywhere, pagan, uh, pagan ideology. It's just, it was everywhere. And I, and I kind of thought, you know, this is very much the kind of the world we live in a lot of ways. We might not have pagan temples everywhere, but there's a lot of things that get worshiped in our culture that are not God. And there's a lot of non or anti-God sentiment and uh, worldview all around us everywhere we, we go. But again, Paul is not saying sever ties with all unbelievers. We are to live in the world, but not of the world. So how does this unequally yoked happen today for us in the culture? And it didn't take me long to realize that, that we are bombarded every day by our culture, all the time. Think about just media alone. Think about from movies, TV shows, streaming shows, social media, blogs, podcasts, magazines, books, news reporters, all of these things constantly bombarding us with a message that most of the time is contrary to God's word, right? And so we have, we have the possibility of being so unequally yoked by the influences around us. And even just take your phone, for instance, and I hear a lot of times from people my age or older always complaining about, oh, the kids are always on their phones all the time. Well, let me tell you, I've been doing a little looking around and people my age and older are on their phone just as much as the kids are. In fact, just about any age, you'll find people married to their phone. Might you, might I be unequally yoked to that device? I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. Here's a couple of problems though when it comes to this being unequally yoked by our culture. First of all, we have the problem that we think or we don't realize just how much influence the culture has on us. We don't realize how much it influences our mind, how much it influences our thinking, how much it influences our actions. We just don't think it has any influence. Like, no, I'm, I'm fine. It's not influencing me. I can watch that. It's not going to affect me. 
Or if we don't realize it, we take this other attitude. The second problem is we think we can handle it. Oh yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I, I can go to this movie. I, I think it's, it's pretty good. I can watch this. I can be involved in this. I can have this kind of relationship. I'll be fine. I'm strong in my faith. And so we've got to be very careful because there is no neutral ground here. Either we're being influenced towards Christ or away from Christ. Either the world has a greater influence or God's word has a greater influence on our lives. There is no, oh, I can coast through the middle here on this. And that's probably the most challenging thing I could say this morning as we talk about this command to do not be unequally yoked is the thought that there is no neutral ground. That we are either being influenced by the world and the relationships in the world or we're being influenced by God and his word and relationships that are encouraging us in our faith. The principle here is we must guard against ungodly influences. We must be on guard as followers of Christ against ungodly influences in our lives. Roman numeral two, the persuasion. And really now for the, 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 Paul has these first eight words. And now for the rest of this passage, he's gonna be trying to reinforce what he's just said, as Paul does typically. And we're gonna look at the, the, uh, the persuasion and the promises and the plea in two, three, and four. But beginning here in verse 14, the second part of verse 14, Paul brings in these five questions, these rhetorical questions that he asked. And he's using these questions to contrast the difference between believers and unbelievers. And in Paul's mind, it's just incomprehensible that, that any of these could be linked together. That's why he asked them the way he does. The answer is a clear, resounding none for each one of these. And we're going to look through these kind of quickly. But the first one is, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And obviously, that's a, that's a pretty obvious one, that the righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness, Right? that the lawlessness is the unbeliever, righteousness is the believer. But it's righteousness for the believer, not in what he or she does, but it's in what God has done for them through his son, Jesus Christ. We looked at this verse two weeks ago, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The entire message was built around this one verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin, talking about Jesus, him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, our nature is transformed. And if you're here today outside of Christ, you are just like every one of us in the sense that we all were born into this sin nature, this lawlessness. But the beauty of the gospel is that God, in his amazing grace and amazing mercy and amazing love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be our savior. And for those of us that recognized our sin condition, that there was nothing we could do to earn that righteousness, there was no way possible we could ever, ever, ever be righteous before God, apart from what God did through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We repented, we turned from our sin, and put our faith and trust in Christ and him alone. And if you're here today as a believer, I want to reemphasize that in your life because as we look at this question, there should be a stark contrast. You should see, yes, I have this righteousness, not because of anything I've done, it's because of what God has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection as a sin sacrifice, atonement for my sin. But if you're here today outside of Christ, you find yourself on the lawlessness side. Boy, it's our prayer 
As Pastor Dave mentioned earlier, that you would seriously consider the claims of Christ, that you would seriously consider the truth of God's word. We would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Christ, what it means to experience that righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ. I'll be around after the service. Other people would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. But Paul's question is, is, is this rhetorical question that has a, a resounding no, there is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. The second question in the text, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. Light always when the scriptures represents God, his holy, holy, his purity, holiness and purity, truth, where darkness represents Satan and evil and error. And Paul's saying, ah, there, there, is no, there is no connection between these two. There is no fellowship Again, for believers, we are the light, but it's not by our own making. It's because we are a new creation in Christ. Jesus was very clear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, when he says, you are the light of the world. The third question we see is, what accord has Christ with Belial? Now, some of you may be saying, well, I don't know who this Belial character is. And so we need to stop and pause here for a moment and say, let's make sure we understand what the text is saying. That word Belial means worthless or wicked. And we find this word being used in the Old Testament several times, and it usually is always referring to wicked people. But over time, that word came to be synonymous or a name for Satan. And we have that evidence even in the Dead Sea Scrolls where Satan is called Belial. And so when you understand that the word Belial is the name for Satan, and you read that question, what accord has Christ with Belial? There is a jarringness to it, right? What in the world could there be any kind of agreement between Christ and Satan? None. And that's Paul's point. He wants us to say none. His fourth question, which is really a summary of the first three, he says, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? There's no spiritual common ground between a believer and an unbeliever. When we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, everything about us changes. Our character changes. Our purposes change. Our feelings change. Our drive change. Our emotions change. Everything about us changes. And so while we will have a lot of things in common with unbelievers, we'll live in the same city. We might work at the same place. We might go to the same school. We might live in the same neighborhood. We might even have them as family members. We have a lot of things in common. Internally, we are so different. We have been transformed. We have been changed from the inside. And that's why I put on your outline this principle under Roman numeral two, that Christians cannot live in collaboration with unbelievers. We must not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now you might be saying there's another question. What about it? There is another question, but I'm going to put it with Roman numeral three, because when Paul asked this last question, it is almost like a, he's teeing off what he wants to talk about and kind of get to what I think maybe is the heart of the matter, at least for those Christians in Corinth, because he goes into about a three verse, pretty lengthy discussion on this issue. And I think it tells us that he's trying to deal with this issue of pagan idolatry with the Christians there in Corinth, because he asked the question, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then from there, he makes this statement and don't miss this. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. The truth is believers individually and collectively are the temple of the living God. Now, I know for these 
these, uh, these Corinthian Christians, this would have been quite a, a, a challenge for them to get their minds wrapped around it. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But before that, look at what he says after he mentions that they're the temple of the living God. He uses this phrase, as God said. Now, in my Bible, it has, as God said, and then there's this indented section for the rest of verse 16, 17, and 18. Now, if you're like me, you, you probably think, okay, so here's where Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, right? And he, he's got a particular verse or verses that he's quoting from the Old Testament. And you would be partially right. Because what Paul is doing here is he's taking from about four or five different passages, different passages in the Old Testament, different books in the Old Testament, and he's putting them together. And he's putting them together in only the way that a, a Holy Spirit-inspired apostle can do in putting down text to give us to support what he's telling the, these Christians in Corinth, that you are, in fact, the temple of the living God. And so that's what he's doing through this passage. And we'll see really three ways he does it. First of all, the promise of God's presence in letter A. He says here, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul is telling them again, individually and collectively, you are the temple of the living God. Now, Corinthians were familiar with temples. As I said earlier, that place was littered with temples, pagan temples. And they understood what you did at a temple. You, you went there to worship a god, little g, or gods, little g, or goddesses. But then to hear that they were a temple of the living God, and Paul's making it clear, not a temple of idols with dead gods, but a temple of the living God. Man, how in the world is that even possible? And while they struggled to get their, their minds wrapped around that, we even struggle a little bit, little bit with that. But this wasn't the first time Paul had dealt with this issue with them. I'm sure he had taught this while he was there. Even in his first letter, he addresses this very clearly multiple times. I'll give you one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, he says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So Paul is telling him, you are the temple of the living God. God's presence dwells with you and you are his, his possession. And then he gives a command, letter B, which is really to live separately. He says, therefore, because you are the temple of the living God, because you have God's presence in you, because you are his possession, therefore, live separately. And he says, go out from their midst, be separate from them and touch no unclean thing. This makes sense. If I'm a temple of the living God, then I want to avoid idolatry and impurity in my life, right? I don't want to let those things in my life. Just as the, the Jews there in Corinth that had come to saving faith would understand the temple of God was a holy place and to, and to put an idol in that temple was sacrilege, right? They couldn't even imagine anybody doing that, how terrible that would be. Just as it would be for us today, even though this is not a temple, it's a, it's, a, it's a building where we worship. We are the temple of God. But still, if you walked in this morning and there was a temple, even if it was hidden over in the corner and you saw that, I mean, a temple, an idol over in the corner, you would, you would be in outrage, right? Like, who in the world would bring an idol into this worship center? But yet think about it. Almost every day, as followers of Christ, we are tempted to allow idolatry into our lives, to allow ungodly influences into our lives, and while we might feel a little bit bad about it in the moment, we continue on in that sin or in that relationship. And the challenge for us is to recognize that we are the temple of the living God. 
that we are called to live separately. He's just reinforcing verse 14, do not be unequally yoked. Live separately, live differently. And that's really the, the, the principle, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but let's get letter C, his family. His family, the promise of his family. He's not done giving some promises. I love this. It's a promise sandwich. He's got promises at the front, promises at the back here. And then he says in the end of verse 17, then I will welcome you. And I love that part of that verse. I will welcome you. Once you separate, I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will, shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God declares that we will not only be welcome for those who regard themselves as his temple and keep themselves separate from the world, but that he will be a father to them. Paul is just trying to reinforce these promises, these blessings that we have when we're obedient to God, when we truly do live unequally yoked, when we separate ourselves from this world. And so the principle here is that we are to live separately as God's family. We are to live differently. Does your life have any distinction from the people that you work with, the people that live in your neighborhood? Is there anything that stands out about you as being different towards Christ, towards following God, toward living a life based on his word instead of based on the world? We're called to be, to live separately. The Roman number four, the plea. And Paul's gonna reiterate really again the same thing about not being unequally yoked. But look what he says. And, and by the way, the chapter break's unfortunate here. It's, it should go right along with what we've been talking about. Uh, verse one is definitely part of this, this, this passage and, and what Paul is communicating. And we know that because he starts with, since we have these promises. What are the promises he's talking about? He's talking about the promises that we are the temple of the living God, that, that we have his presence, that, that we are his possession, that we are part of his family, that we are his sons and daughters. And because we have these promises, beloved, let us, and Paul is very pastoral here, in the sense that he's not saying, you need to do this. He's saying, let us. What do we need to do? We need to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. That means every aspect of our lives, of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because of these promises, we are to cleanse ourselves. We are to pure ourselves, purify ourselves from any defilement Live a life of holiness unto the Lord. This, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is the sanctification process that we are all called to live. We are saved, as we talked about earlier, through what Christ has done for us. That's our salvation. And now we move into this phase called sanctification that we will do until eternity gets here and glorification kicks in. But right now, it's the sanctification process of working toward Christ-likeness obedience, following him. And this world that we live in is going to do everything it can to fight against that. We talked about influences earlier. And from the moment I wake up in the morning, I'm gonna be hit with ungodly influences. And it's just gonna get stronger as the day goes on. And so are you. And if you think you're immune to ungodly influences, you may be in that camp earlier of just not realizing what these influences are and how they're affecting your life but they're gonna hit us. They're gonna come at us. And just like Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We must be in the word. This needs to be the primary influencer in our lives, God's word. And when you take, a, take an inventory, and I pray you do this, take inventory about your relationships and how they're influencing you and how this world is influencing you. And if you realize that you're watching a whole lot more media than you are reading God's word, then guess who probably has the greater influence in your life? 
And I'll be honest, I struggle with this too. I struggle with this too. That, it, that realizing, okay, how much of this world is coming into my life versus how much of God's word. And I know this is a priority. I know that I have a love for God's word. I want to know what God's word says, but the world is pulling hard on each and every one of us, right? It's pulling hard. And so again, it comes down to a matter of influence. Who is influencing you more? The world, the culture, relationships, or is it God and his word or godly relationships that are encouraging, more, encouraging you more toward Christ. 